Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today I will be joined by a special guest to discuss working in minor league baseball, the winter meetings, and sport marketing. So if you've ever wondered what happens behind the scenes in professional sports or how to get a job working in the field of sport management, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, we're going to be joined by the South Atlantic League Female Executive of the Year, Sam Fisher. Now, before we have her on, I want to give you a little bit of background about her. Sam graduated with her Bachelor's of Science in Recreation and Sport Management from Coastal Carolina University and is currently enrolled at NC State where she's obtaining her Master's of Research in Parks, Recreation, Tourism, and Sport Management. Sam has had a ton of experience working in professional sport, uh, starting with an internship that she had while at Coastal Carolina with the Red Sox, and continuing into her current role as the Creative Marketing Manager for the Asheville Tourists, which are the Class A affiliate of the Colorado Rockies. As part of that job as a creative marketing manager, Sam is in charge of selling sponsorships. She sells over $100,000 annually. She has sold season tickets. She's in charge of corporate outings and creating multimedia content. Uh, she's in charge of engaging the Asheville community through community immersion programs and managing both employees and college interns. So she has a plethora of experience, which I'm excited to have her talk about today. So let's jump in and listen to my interview with Sam Fisher. I guess to begin with, I think it's beneficial if students and people understand how you actually get involved working within sport, because I know in college you were working within sport, but then you kind of went more recreation in that first job right out of college before you got back into it. So maybe just tell Mm -hmm. us how you got involved working within the sporting world in general. Okay. Um, I mean, sport was always my my goal, the sports side, um, you know, the recreation side, while it's something I enjoy, enjoy, I almost, I almost like it more, you know, on a personal level rather than a professional level. So that was really just a stepping stone to get me from one place in sport to the other. Gotcha. And, you know, it, it's a very, it's still a very customer related, or I guess you say customer focused industry. So just to continue to like fine tune those skills, that's really where the rec side came in for me. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the sports side, I mean, I always knew that's where it was. You know, I always knew that that's where I wanted to be. And I guess it was just kind of weaving in, you know, what I wanted to do and how it related to sport. Um, And so from a standpoint of when I got back into sport, I knew I wasn't going to walk right into a marketing job or a fan entertainment job or promotions job. It just doesn't work like that because it's such a sought after position at this point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to get your foot in the door somewhere else. Um, sales is a great route for that because marketing and sales are, are pretty congruent in a lot of ways and sales are just something you need for the rest of your life. So, you know, twofold in that one, I didn't really want to do sales, but I knew it was something that was going to help me. And, and the second is just, you know, it was a good way to at least just start meet people, um, and kind of create the stepping stone to the marketing side of things. 
So when you were looking and applying for jobs way back when mm-hmm. and trying to get back into sport, what other type of jobs mm-hmm. did you apply for? Did you see out there besides just sales that you might have tried to get into but was a little bit more difficult? I'll be honest, most of them were sales-based. Okay. I would say, you know, seven out of 10 were sales-based. And maybe, you know, that other 30% were somewhere in like community relations, you know, community relations type job. But for the most part, they're sales-based because most entry-level positions are sales. And do you find now that since you are hiring people, do you find that mm-hmm. most of them don't want to do sales? Um, no, I would say I would say sales kind of gets this unfair, taboo-esque, uh, you know, aura around it. It's kind of daunting to think about making 80 phone calls a day. Yeah. Um, and that's really how, how it's almost marketed to us as students. And, and that's not always the case. I mean, when I started in Asheville, they were very clear that they wanted quality over quantity any day of the week. You know, they would mm-hmm. take 30 great calls over 80 crummy calls. Yeah. That that to them was more valuable. So I, I, I kind of think that sales kind of gets this taboo nature around it. Once I got into it and I thought like and I almost enjoyed, you know, like keep closing that deal, making that sale, feeling the deal. Um that's exciting. You know, it's very relationship based. So if you're a relationship driven person, it's actually pretty exciting. Uh, It just kind of gets a bad rap. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit as far as when you were in sales, what did the typical day look like? Like, What were your responsibilities when you came into the office? Who were you calling? Um, How were you going about trying to get these individuals to buy tickets? Sure. So, you know, you don't most, most times, in these situations, you're not walking in to zero leads. You know, you have leads, you have some um, people that have that are, are probably an easy renewal, but, and those kind of help you get to your, you know, your cold calls. Um, so a typical day, you know, you walk in, you kind of make sure everything's set up. I, I see if I have any, um, any emails, but I don't often answer them right away unless they're pressing. Um, because you can kind of get stuck in an email rut and then your day gets started a little bit later. So normally I'd already have lists of X amount of people that I wanted to call okay. and I would just kick off doing that. And I always tried to get my, my hardest calls out of the way earlier in the day. You know, the ones that they keep pushing me off or mm-hmm. the tough sale, you know, just get the hard ones out of the way. And that way you're not sitting around all day thinking about them. But I always, I always shot for 40 great calls. That was kind of my, you know, my line of, of success in a day. And then I'd save the last 45 minutes, maybe the last hour to send emails, follow up, shoot over information that we discussed in a phone call with somebody. Um, that was really my time to kind of like recap the day and make sure that I did follow up on what I told those people I was going to follow up on. And how long were you in that position for where you were doing that? Um, consistently, probably six months. Um, but that wasn't exactly, you know, my, uh, that wasn't exactly the plan. We had, you know, somebody left here and I kind of had to fill in for their role and my role. So once I took over their role as well, I went to about 50, 50, you know, 50 sales and then 50 on that marketing fan engagement role. And then at the end of that year, I fully got promoted into that role. So, you know, six months 
fully just doing sales. So in your experience, is how often do individuals come into an organization like the tourist or other you know professional sport teams and are able to move up using sales within the first couple years? I mean that that's the goal, you know, not not just for not just for somebody that's breaking into the industry, but but for us as employers as well. We want to we want to breed the next generation of people that's going to make our organization great. We don't want to make you great and then mm-hmm. you know chase you off. We want you to stay. We want you to grow with us. So it's a goal, but obviously there's there's not always the space. So the next best thing we could do is you know help you find something somewhere else, but. Number one goal is to always keep you. You know, that's in terms of, I think, for a good organization, that that should always be your number one goal. Now, is that true for just employees? Is it also true for students coming and doing internships? How does that work with the movement of interns into maybe full-time positions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's true across the board. I don't want to, in a not selfish way, I don't want to take in an intern for six months show them the ropes and then send them off. I want them to be great and I want them to be great with us. They can't be great with us. Well, that's okay too, but that's the goal. So when you all are hiring interns, a couple of questions first, Mm -hmm. how many interns do you generally bring in during, you know, fall and spring? What's the process like for you hiring them? How many applicants Mm -hmm. are you getting? What exactly are you looking for when you're trying to hire those individuals? So for the interns, we, our internship program runs, from roughly beginning of April until the end of September. There is a lot of wiggle room in that because we do expect that the students that come in for internships are receiving college credit. Actually, they're required to. Okay. So we do accommodate for their, you know, semester end and start dates. So, but anywhere in that April to beginning of September timeframe is what our internship program actually runs. We don't have any interns in the fall or winter because, to be honest, there's just not enough work for that. Gotcha. Um, we, we aren't one of these facilities that's hosting, you know, 100 special events in the off season. It's just not big enough. So that's why we kind of created it as a program specific to the season. Mm-hmm. And then that way, you know, our interns can get experience in everything, not just picking up phones in the box office, but also in food and beverage and how that runs on a nightly basis or game mm-hmm. entertainment. You know, we're looking, I'm not necessarily looking for experience, but more a will to learn. Somebody that shows me they, they're they excited. You okay. know, somebody that shows me that they're interested and excited. Experience is always great, but it's not a prerequisite to an internship, in my opinion. You know, you're coming to get experience. Gotcha. But, it, you know, the process is, is for an internship, it's a, a phone um, phone, maybe two phone interviews um, as we kind of go through the pool of applicants. And really that, that pool of applicants in terms of numbers varies. Uh, some years we have 500 and some years we have 200. I think it just kind of depends on like the climate of sport management programs at that point, you know, gotcha. yeah. um, students that they're holding. But yeah, it, it can vary. It just depends, I think. I do find that the mindset of students seems to have shifted a little bit in terms of, um, you know, not wanting to move for an internship. Interesting. And that can hurt a lot of people. That's something that's kind of jumped out at me from the interviewing that I do at winter meetings. You know, a lot of people just aren't willing to move. And in an industry where we're location specific, sometimes that's not always really an option. So it's definitely something you have to be willing to do and open to. And it's not always easy. 
you know, finances are always number one issue, but sometimes you just got to figure out how to make things work. Yeah. I, I find that interesting. I always tell students when I talk with them, it's, you know, you can be, you can be picky about one thing with an internship or a job. Mm-hmm. You can be picky about, you know, whether it's paid or not paid, the location of the internship, what you're doing, but right. you can't be picky about everything because you're not going to have opportunities right. then. So it's interesting that right. that you're seeing, especially within professional sports, where I find a lot of students want to go and gain experience, that location is that thing that they're they're being so picky on when yeah. they're not professional sports teams everywhere. Right. Exactly. And that's that's it surprised me in the beginning. I was like, huh, you know, maybe this is just a you know, a fluke, I don't know. And then yeah. I've just kind of seen it every single year since that it's 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 really picked up that location is probably or at least what it sounds like the biggest deciding factor for some people and it's just not realistic yeah especially within within professional sport where even if you start at a location that you like or get an internship the ability to continuously move up within the same organization is oftentimes limited mm-hmm. in order to get promoted Absolutely. oftentimes you have to go to another team or maybe even to another uh, another sport Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You kind of, you, you take yourself out of the running for a lot of different opportunities if you aren't open to location changes. So you said you get between 200 and 500 applicants. How do you mm-hmm. discern between them? I mean, that's obviously a large number to have to go through all those mm-hmm. resumes and cover letters. What sticks out to you? Uh, what makes you put someone in that, that pile right away where you want to interview them versus what makes you maybe throw that resume or cover letter away right away? Right. So you'd honestly be surprised how many people just show a complete lack of effort. Mm. Um, And that's normally the number one thing that will push me into a a no pile. If it just looks like you hit send along with 10 other places and you didn't do anything to gear your resume or cover letter specifically towards the position or the organization, it's kind of telling. I think that you should all you should always be making small changes that are focused towards what you want. Yeah. Uh, whether it's a job or working for a specific organization, you know, you should be all, you should always make it personal. And that kind of lack thereof is very telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side, you know, the ones that push me right into yes or they're you know specific in their cover letters. I saw this job on this website. I was told by this person that this was available. You know, the, something that put, puts in adds those details in. From the resume standpoint, you know, it honestly just goes back to effort. There's, you, there's, you're, there's a line for effort, and you know, it's pretty black and white. Mm-hmm. So if you, if it just looks like you threw it together in five minutes, why, why would, why should I take the time out of my day to interview you? Yeah, it's something you know. We I talk to students about this too. It's having something that catches someone's eye. And I know when you initially were going out for jobs, one of the things that I think made you a good candidate is you put out this resume that was so unique. I hadn't seen it, that format before, but it showed a lot of effort like you were talking about. And automatically it catches that eye, makes you stand out. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, instead of spending five, 10 seconds, just glancing over it, a person's going to spend more time on it and they're going to look more in depth into your experiences. And it's something I wish students would do in general with everything, whether it's just an email mm-hmm. communication. Uh, it's easy to see yeah. who spends 10 seconds typing an email and just sending it versus a person that spends time putting a uh, a proper introduction in there, proper conclusion, mm-hmm. um, the language and all those things. Those I don't think students understand those little points of effort stand out to a professional. Whereas, Yeah, and you know, I think it oh, – I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> 
I was just going to say, I think it just all goes back to how relationship driven this industry is. You need to put your personal touch on things, whether you're applying for a position or trying to close the deal. Um, those things matter in this type of industry. Yeah. I think that's a great point because everything we're doing within really within sport or recreation, it's all interaction mm -hmm. driven. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. if you're in sales, if you're in marketing, um, if you're in game day ops, at all times you're dealing with a customer and or you're dealing yep. with someone that you want to become a customer in the future. And if if in your initial interaction with the organization is a sloppy cover leather they didn't put time into, that probably reflects on what you're going to be like in the position that you're applying for, that you're going to be sloppy, you're not going to take care of atten uh, to attention. And that's what makes a customer come back is those little things that stand out to them. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly where I'm kind of going with that. And it just, it's easy to tell those things, especially when you put up a resume of one resume next to another. And then mm -hmm. one of them you can tell was thrown together in five minutes. And one of them you can tell threw a lot of effort into it. Yeah. The person that was sloppy about it might have more experience, but you know, they're not doing anything to make me want to interview them. Yeah. And that's a great, I think that's a great point because oftentimes we think experience or good grades in college that that's going to get us a position. And really, in real life, it's all about your ability to interact with other individuals at that professional level. And that's something that I feel like so few people actually have, is that ability to yeah. talk, to communicate, um, whether that's through emails, on the phone, or in person. It's something that I feel like is almost a dying art form, and yet it's so important within sport. Yeah, and I think that's why I, I enjoy winter meetings so much from a, a hiring perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm a pretty informal interviewer. I don't like to, I'm not, I'm not transactional in my interviews. You know, they're not question, answer, question, answer. I like to have conversations with people because if you're in that type of setting and you can have a conversation, a, a fluid, comfortable conversation with someone, that's just tells me so much about you as a, as a person. And, you know, as an, not as a, cause you don't have to be extroverted to, um, you know, be relationship driven, but it just, you know, comfort, is very telling. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think that's why I like interviewing at winter meetings a lot as well, because you, know, you can just, you can see, you can see everything. Yeah. Um, and it just, it puts a more of a personal touch on it. Yeah. And so that takes me into one of the questions I, I had written down here is I would love for you to talk a little bit about what winter meetings are like, kind of from your perspective as going there mm -hmm. from a representative for a minor league baseball team, what do you do? What's the setup like? Kind of what's the environment? Because most people aren't going to ever get that experience or a lot of students are too afraid to maybe take the chance and go there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, winter meetings are pretty cool. They're, they're big and you know, they're very extravagant. It's what everybody sees is the, is major league baseball, the rule five draft, um, mm -hmm. you know, the off season trades and transactions. But what you don't really see on the back end is that also every single minor league baseball team is there. We have league meetings and affiliate meetings. There's a ginormous trade show where we'll pick out promotional items from the, for the year. Or, you know, one thing I'm doing this year is designing a new mascot. So I'll sit oh, wow. down with our mascot company and, and go through designs and, and whatnot. So that's kind of a number of things that happen at the trade show. And then the fourth part, my favorite part, is the job fair. So you as a major or minor league team or even, you know, a company like ESPN, mm -hmm. um, you can post job offerings and basically a, a 
let's say a job seeker will show up with their stack of resumes and they'll go through every single job and they'll drop their resume in a mailbox for that specific job. Wow. Um, those, those resumes are then turned over to us. So let's say last year, I think I hired for um, four positions. So I, I had four stacks of, of resumes, each for a specific position. Wow. And then I go through them. I just sit there and I go through hundreds of resumes. <laughs> um, and I pull aside the ones that I like and I call them up real quick and I say, hey, can you meet today at 11 a.m.? Let's chat for 10 minutes. And, I'll, and I just do an on-site interview right there, that, that easy. Wow. Um, and it's great. It's, it's, a, it's such a unique experience. And I tell every single person that I sit down with, the first thing I want to tell you is kudos because it's, I can, from an employer standpoint, it's overwhelming to be here. Yeah. So I can only imagine from a job seeking point of view, how overwhelming it is to walk into a room of 800 people Mm -hmm. looking to get the same job you are, you know, that's there's, they always say there's two job seekers for every job. So you're always beating at least one other person out or trying to, and it's just, it's wild because you, you walk into this great big convention room and the side, there's you know, a portion of the room that's specifically for ongoing interviews. And the other portion is just all these job seekers, all these college kids and, and some, some people looking to make a career change, but mostly college kids. And they're all just sitting at tables together. And some of them are getting phone calls to have an interview and some of them aren't. And it's, it's, uh, it's a very unique environment. Definitely something everyone should experience. Yeah, that's, it's interesting because I imagine just if I think about it from an employer standpoint, just the act mm-hmm. of the student going there is is showing a great deal of effort to put themselves in an uncomfortable mm-hmm. situation. Like you said, all these all these professionals there, and I bet I, I bet that probably stands out more than just getting you know a random email to your inbox with a resume asking about a mm-hmm. position because already they're they're kind of going the extra mile to show that Absolutely. they want the position. Absolutely, I mean it's. It's intent. Like I'll be the first person to say it's intimidating. <laughs> yeah. Um. I have I have so much respect for for anybody that you know comes with their stack of resumes and tries to get a job or an internship or or a, an assistantship. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's it's intimidating. So it, it says a lot about you as a person just to kind of make that leap to go. You know, it, fi- financially it's an investment mm-hmm. and. You know, personally and professionally, it's an investment. So yeah, and the financial investment is I always find interesting. And I know you know it's it's tough talking about money with students sometimes or, or people that are interested in getting mm-hmm. in. But I always tell people like you have your whole life to make money, and so to invest three to five hundred dollars in a plane ticket and then invest money in a hotel room, I understand that that seems like it can be a lot. But from the sound of it, it sounds like if you really want to get into baseball specifically, mm-hmm. the winter meetings is kind of the way to go. Oh, it's a no-brainer. It's yeah. a no-brainer. This is actually a great year to go to because it's in Vegas. So yeah. hotels are cheap. You can find cheap flights. This is actually a, a great year to go to winter meetings. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And I mean, yeah, yes, it's an investment, but make it work for you too. You know, okay, you spend the extra money on a flight. We'll see if you can get a couple of friends to go and mm-hmm. split a hotel room. Make it make it work however you can, but it's it says a lot if you go and it's it's always funny too to see the people that also then go the extra mile, like the kid that sits in the lobby with a big sign that says <laughs> "Interview me." You know the yeah. the the college student that litters elevator floors with their business cards. It's just uh, it kind of cracks me up. But hey, you know whatever you got to do. Yeah, that's it's, awesome. Uh, that it 
it's impressive sometimes too. So one of the things that you mentioned, as I want to kind of segue, you, you mentioned that one of the things you're going to be doing at winter meetings in this year is designing a new mascot. Mm-hmm. So first off, yeah. I'd, love to, I'd love to talk about that. But just in general, can you kind of describe what mm-hmm. it is you currently do and what your role is with mar- marketing and sponsorship? Sure. So um, sponsorship easy. I sell sponsorship, whether it's a sign, a program ad, a on-field game, just any way to kind of give another company or organization a, a pivotal point in the mm-hmm. ballpark. The nice thing about a ballpark or any stadium or sporting event is you have a, a, a captivated audience. Yeah. They they are there for to take in everything that you throw at them. So that kind of makes our job really unique from a sponsorship perspective. And then I also deal with all of our sponsorship fulfillment. So whether I sold them that sponsorship or not, you know, I... I make sure we have proof of performance pictures for everything. I put together end of the year case studies for certain ones, bigger accounts. And then from a marketing standpoint, you know, uh, content creation Mm -hmm. from social media to our newsletters to on-field content. What are we going to put out? How are we going to say things? How are we going to relay information to our fans? Because it's not, you know, a lot of times people think marketing and they think of a flyer or they think an insert in a program, but it goes so much further than that. You know, all year I spend every time someone sells a sponsorship writing, you know, new scripts for them. You know, how are we going to segue them into the game? How are we going to make them important in the middle of the game um, and give them that footing to really get in front of people? Like I said, this captivated audience. So it's, it's so content creation based. And then I also look at my job from marketing standpoint as customer relations. I mean, every single game I'm at the front gate, what, what type of vibe or what type of, how do I want other people to see us? The way we run a game or an event is how people view us. So I always make sure that we're, we're marketing ourselves from a very positive perspective. If so, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. One of the things it's I always find interesting about minor league baseball, um, specifically mm-hmm. baseball in general, but really minor league is the breadth of marketing and sponsorship ideas that teams mm-hmm. have. Where do you go about yeah. creating ideas in, in coming up with how you're going to stand out and make that product that you're trying to sell or that company that you're trying to promote stand out amongst mm-hmm. all the different crazy things that are going on in minor league baseball or even just the <laughs> things that other things you might have going on in the ballpark? Right. So every, every sponsor has their own goals when it comes to marketing. You know, I really think a ballpark is a place for, for, you know, a number of things, but brand awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going to see that Subaru sign in the outfield and they're not going to buy a Subaru tomorrow, but in six months they're going to be ready to buy a new car and they're going to think Subaru, mm-hmm. you know? So really we just, we want to give people or organizations, companies, you know, that, that place where they can really get in front of people because, you know, at the end of the day, no one's going to see a sign and just go out and buy that car because they saw a sign. But we have to also think of ways to make them stand out in people's minds, not in the moment, Um, because that's almost just as important. So let's say in the craziness of all the minor league baseball stuff, how do we make that one sign stand out? Well, what if we say if that sign gets hit by a a ball, then Mm -hmm. everybody in the stadium gets X prize. You you just kind of have to think of ways to put more 
put eyes on it for longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, I would, I would say we're one of the teams that actually takes a little bit of, of a step back from the craziness of certain promotions. I mean, we still do what we have to do for the ESPN shout out or um, mm-hmm. some kind of PR from a crazy promotion. But at the same time, we have to remember the people here that are trying to have that, um, you know, that, that centralized focus in front of our fans. So it is, there is a fine line sometimes and you don't, you don't want to get lost in it because then your sponsor gets lost. And if your sponsor gets lost, then they don't see the value. So you mentioned that you put together kind of end of year reports or metrics. What exactly do you Mm -hmm. report back to the sponsor about, do you, you said you take pictures, but what else do you actually report back to show that they're getting the value for what they're buying? Right. Um, you know, that's tough because you can't really put a number on those types of things. But, you know, when it comes down to it, I like to give people as much of a number as I can. Mm-hmm. You take attendance, you take average attendance, you, you know, how many eyeballs were looking at their sign per season. That number always blows people's minds away. Yeah. Um, and that's, a, that's kind of like a, that's the one I go to a lot because it's kind of a showstopper. Like that's how many eyes saw your sign just six months, you know? Um, but we, we really just showcase how, how they were branded within the ballpark in those case studies. So the different elements of their particular contracts and then how we, you know, how we sold them to the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and that most of the time that is more visual, you know, that is your pictures. People want to see things where there's players in, or excuse me, players on the field, actively a game being played. Yeah. So that, that kind of helps us show the value. With the new mascot, what, what was the idea? Because mm-hmm. obviously the Asheville Tourists, you, I'm assuming you've had a mascot in the past. So what was the thought process <laughs> in changing the mascot or coming up with a new one? So it's actually not technically a new mascot. We're just giving him maybe like a little, I guess, a little facelift. Okay. Um, mascots, have a sh- mascots have a shelf life. Um, and we, ha- we have two mascots. And one of them, he's all white. So his shelf life is a lot, uh, a lot shorter than the other one. Gotcha. So we're just kind of, I'm just re, I guess I should say redesigning him in that, you know, we're just trying to make him more, um, sh- honestly stronger to outlast the season. Every, <laughs> every season, off season, I send the mascots out for this very expensive spa retreat and, you know, they get <laughs> re-sewed and washed and everything. And he just seems to not be handling the seasons as well as the other ones. So okay. we're going to take in, I'm getting some quotes right now and we're going to take a new, new approach to him. Um, try and try, try and freshen him up a little bit. Gotcha. How do you use the mascot during the course of the season or in the off season to help with marketing? Sure. So one of the biggest parts of marketing from a uh, professional sports standpoint is your relationship to the community. That is one of the most important parts in my opinion. You know, we don't, we don't charge a penny for a mascot at a library reading to kids um, because, you know, you want, you need to have that, that good, um, that good look because it's important, especially in a community like Asheville that's very local based. Yeah. Um, the economy is very locally driven. Well, I shouldn't say that. We have a huge tourist uh, uh, side of the economy, but it's also very locally driven. So bringing him around town to festivals, 
to schools, to, like I said, libraries, to different companies, sponsors that are maybe opening a new location or having a, a client appreciation day, you know, bring the mascot there. How, how can we help them in the off season when we don't have a season going on? So it, it also, it helps us stay fresh and relevant um, and on people's minds in our community. So he's the, the mascots are a really big part of our, our marketing, uh, our marketing within the community. Gotcha. Yeah. Establishing a community presence, it's something, you know, coastal Carolina and being there that I feel like they've kind of fallen short with and making the mm-hmm. community buy in and take ownership of whether it's professional sport or yeah. college sport or whatever, because the local community are the ones that are primarily coming to games. And even if you're in a like Asheville or Myrtle beach, that has a high tourist population, mm-hmm. you don't see tourists oftentimes coming to an area and then engaging with the sport unless they're really, really right. big baseball fans. But even then <laughs> to build them as a lifetime fan or to keep them coming back is really hard. So it's, it's interesting yeah. to hear that you use the mascot uh, to do that. Do you use, do you do anything else to help engage the community? Do you have players that go out into the community or do you do special? Events? Oh yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of, player community appearances. It's really big on my list. Actually, the Colorado Rockies are huge on it. They are very big on being a good person. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds a little funny to say, it's, you know, everybody should be a good person, <laughs> yeah. but they're they're really big on. It. They don't take a player saying, "No, I'm not going to the school to read to kids." They don't oh, wow. they don't take that. They don't stand for it. And the players know that. And and I, you know, not to say that every player needs to be forced to go read to kids, but there's also there's a lot of them that are just like yeah absolutely you need me to go to the hospital and talk to some kids in the ICU absolutely wow. so it it helps for for one thing you know it helps them it helps the players yeah. keeps keeps them down on earth sometimes mm-hmm. um, but for us just these guys are here for six months and they're gone and they're most likely not going to be back so for for that time period it, it kind of puts a face on our team gotcha. beyond the mascots. And um, kids especially just look up to these players like, oh, my God, you're a professional baseball player. And and they Mm -hmm. are. So that also is just it helps. It helps during that time of the year, too, and when schools and libraries are are looking for things like that, looking for ways to engage their kids into the community. And we're also trying to do the same thing. So it's a natural fit in a lot of instances as well. But it's incredibly important. to, to have a relationship with your community. Yeah. I think oftentimes people forget fan engagement extends outside of just mm-hmm. the stadium. Oftentimes you it see, does. you see books or, or individuals speak about what are we doing inside the stadium to engage the mm-hmm. fans? You talk about behavioral involvement or cognitive involvement. What mm-hmm. activities are we giving them? What information, how do we create emotion? But it's so right. narrow sided to think that it just is within the stadium during the game. It extends out into the community and I think that's where prof- a lot of professional sports teams do well to try to engage that community to create that mm-hmm. um, involvement with their fan base at all times. And, and it's amazing because yeah. you can see the teams that do it really well that have that identity. And you can then you can see the teams in professional sports that just don't care and that don't engage. And it always ends mm-hmm. up equating to not having the, sta- the, the fans in the stands at the end of the day. Yes. I mean, I always kind of look at it. I don't forget about our fans that actually come to the game, mm-hmm. but yeah. we've already yeah. got them. Yeah. You know, how do we get everybody else? My fa- I will say my favorite appearances to go on are to libraries mm-hmm. because these are people in the community looking for things to do, yeah. actively taking their children there. No one's forced to go to the library. Yeah. 
and they're you know we have we bring these players in or or these mascots and these kids make an instant connection that is like we we got them you have to get people at five years old sometimes not yeah. not 50 years old yeah. and so just to make that connection at a, at a younger age you know i like to i always kind of joke with my interns like let's let's, let's make fans young build them young because those are the ones that keep coming back. I can't tell you how many people come to the ballpark and are like, I've been coming here since I was four or five years old. Yeah. I have pictures with Teddy in the eighties <laughs> yeah. and it's, you know, they're fans for life. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, that's how you get them. You get them out. In the city. Yeah. And you, and, and you're right with libraries. I didn't even, I never thought of that before, but it already, it's a targeted group that's already kind of sectioned themselves off because mm-hmm. they are out. They're looking for things. It's not going to schools is great, but to get the kid, you also need to get the parent. And to just go to schools right. when kids have to be there, yeah, that might make an impression that that could be great and they could talk to their parents about it. And maybe that ends up leading to to them buying a ticket and coming. But in the libraries, to, for kids to get there, their parents have to come. They're, you're right. They're, act, they're out. Right. They're active. They're mm-hmm. seeking things to do. Mm-hmm. And I never thought of it that way. But those types of places are these pre-segmented groups that are great to target. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's it's. The libraries are like number one on my list. I preach them to everybody. <laughs> yeah, and it's something that I have never heard of before. So that's that's and it's a great it's a great idea that like I said, it's just not it's not talked about much by academics. Um, well, yeah. I, have, I have one more question, and it's kind of just an easy sure. one. But since since you have been working in baseball for what the past four or five years, mm-hmm. um, what is the best thing about working in professional baseball, and then what is also maybe the worst or most challenging thing that you've had in your experience? Um, should, do we start with the good or the bad? <laughs> uh, how about start, start um, with the bad and then end on a good note? Okay, we'll start with, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, the bad is not really attached to baseball in any way. Mm-hmm. It's more from a personal standpoint, I think for most people, because, you know, baseball requires a lot of your time, especially yeah. in season. Um, you know, March, we start working Saturdays the entire month. So really March one is when our season kicks off. And then after that, once game starts, I mean, we're here 16 hours a day, sometimes seven yeah. days in a row. Yeah. So the, the time commitment I think is uh, a little daunting to some mm-hmm. people. Definitely at first, I think it's daunting to everybody, but you know, seven, like I said, seven days in a row, 17 hours a day, that adds up and you miss graduation and you miss summer weddings and, yeah. you know, and sometimes you don't, sometimes you do make those things, but you know, there's a lot of them I've missed and it's because mm-hmm. we've had a game and there's nobody else that runs the front gate, but me. So I got to be there. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's honestly the, I would say the tough part about working in any sport. Um, and then, and specifically in baseball, if I just had to go specifically baseball, the weather is oh, yeah. my worst enemy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it could, it can make or break a really great night, yeah. um, or a really great forecast at night. So that would probably be like the worst side of it just baseball specifically speaking. Um, I would say the, I mean, the best part is probably, I guess, you know, as easy as this question and that, you know, I get to come to a ballpark every day and I get to help people create these memories. Yeah. And that sounds super cliche. Um, but, and I'll just like, (laughs) but I mean, I'll I'll hop on the soapbox for a second. I mean, I'm a huge Yankees fan. I know. Don't give me anything for it. But I'm a really big fan because my grandmother took me to games growing up every summer because she was from the Bronx. Yeah. And, you know, I was always I was always interested in what was going on in the field, but I was always in awe of how everything worked together. You know, how are the lights working now? How's, how does he know when to talk on the microphone? 
you know, how does he know who's up? How's all the music playing? I was always very invested in what was going on around me. And that, that, those, those times just created these moments that I, you know, you can't buy them. So it's just helping people to create, create other things like that. You know, I just, I always hope somebody has that same experience that I did again corny soapbox but it's yeah, true but I, I was gonna say i think it's true for people that end up having a passion and working their entire careers within sport and not not mm-hmm. not just hey i want to get into it because i like sport but that connection yeah. oftentimes at that youth level i mean similar as you it's it's that experience that you had when you were as a, were a kid and with your parents or grandparents and asking questions and seeing how much they liked it and being able to have that memory um, is so amazing. Mm-hmm. And then to be working in sports and being able to create that memory, yeah. I feel like that, that passion is probably what keeps those people that are those lifelong workers within the field that keeps them in it, that keeps them through those yeah. 17 hours days and those, you know, <laughs> rainouts that come at the last minute and those seven day mm-hmm. homestands that that's probably what keeps you in it versus someone who just likes baseball because they grew up playing right. it probably is going to have after a certain point burn out. Yeah, I think you definitely have to have a, a passion for mm-hmm. it beyond the game. I always tell our interns or our new salespeople that you have to kind of remember that you're not, you know, you're not working in baseball, you're working in sport, you know, you're working in that customer side of things. So you need to be able to have a passion for that as much as you have a passion for the actual, for baseball itself, because if not, you'll, you'll just get, you'll get burnout. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's and that, just, it's a lot. Yeah, and that, I always try to communicate the fact that well, we're not we're not even selling sport. We're selling entertainment. We're selling an experience. Yeah. Because if we mm-hmm. just think of that, we're yeah. selling a baseball game, then we'll focus on making sure the game is perfect, but we miss everything that's around right. it. And like you said with your grandma, right. the experience is what you remember. You know, oftentimes yeah. you go to a game, 20 years later, you might not remember who won or lost. You remember the experience. Mm-hmm. You remember those events and everything that's happening around it. And if you're focused right. on selling that experience and that entertainment, then you're going to create these great memories for people. And then that what that leads to is all the financial benefits and all the business stuff that the company or that the team wants in the end. So it's interesting how those go hand in hand and how that drives people that work in the industry to kind of be successful. Yep. Yeah, you definitely always have to remember, you know, in minor league baseball, people aren't coming for the players. Yeah. You know, they're they're not coming because we have a you know a guy on our team that's hit 60 home runs. They're yeah. not coming for that. Yeah. You know, that's that's an added perk I guess to a, a home run, but that's not what they're coming for. Yeah. You know, they're coming for the entertainment. They're coming for the the full package, the food, the smells, the sound, the bantering, the entertainment on the field, seeing kids run around on ponies on the field. That's what they're coming yeah. for. They're not coming for the guy hitting 60 home runs. Yeah, so. there's and there's so few of those fans that, that are the diehards that could probably name all the players or know all of them mm-hmm. because the players come and go within this season, yeah. especially minor league baseball. And I grew up going to minor mm-hmm. league Columbus uh, Clipper games, which were the Yankees affiliate back in the day. And every once in a while, they yeah. would have like Daryl Strawberry down there when he was yeah. on suspension for something. Um, but most of the times you don't know any of the players, but what I remember is the cowbell sounds that made during innings. I, I don't even remember why, but that memory, the sounds stick out, the environment, the atmosphere. Yeah. And so those are the things that I think that you get to do that are really cool within marketing is you get to sell that stuff to the consumer and create those ideas and those experiences, mm-hmm. which to me is some of the best parts of minor league sports and sports in general. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, definitely very 
very experience based. So it's, yeah. it's cool to be able to have, take part in that. Yeah. Well, Sam, thank you so much for kind of answering yeah. my questions. And thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast today and my conversation with Sam Fisher. Hopefully, you were able to learn a little bit about what it's like to work in minor league baseball and maybe even got some helpful hints about how to pursue a career in professional sports. If there are any questions that you have that we didn't cover today, or if you have ideas for future guests that we should have on, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at the Sport Professor. Until next time, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.